0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, Acts chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 today. Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat in front of you or right nearby, please feel free to take that. If you don't have a Bible, um, just take it home with you. We have others we can replace. Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the New American Standard here now, God's Word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour the hour of prayer, and a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened, and with a leap he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, by way of background, We saw already in Acts chapter 1 and 2 the ascension of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the birth of the church in those two chapters. They function as one unit. The book of Acts is broken into multiple units, and each one emphasizing certain key points And what we have today is a new unit, a new section of Acts that begins here in Acts chapter three and extends all the way into the early part of Acts chapter eight. And in this section, there are seven specific episodes or pericopes, if you want to be fancy, uh, that Luke gives to us that he chose to make a point or multiple points, however you wish to look at that. What we want to do is ask ourselves why Luke chose these stories. Why does he have this story? And why does he record this sermon? And why does he record what's going to happen in chapters four, five, six, and seven? This is very important for you to begin to learn to do. The very first episode here actually involves the healing of this lame man and what follows. In this, we have the healing of the lame man in the verses 1 through 10 that we just read and what we will look at. Then we have the response by the people in verse 11, and then from 12 down to the end of the chapter, we have the proclamation of the gospel by Peter, which is simply the gospel sermon. So with that in mind, Luke had just referred to something in Acts chapter 2 at the very end that I made mention of in my sermon last time. He had talked about the fact that there was a great awe, or better translation, perhaps, fear among the people in Jerusalem. And the reason that they were filled with fear was because they were experiencing all of these signs and wonders done by the apostles not done by everybody, but the apostles themselves were performing these, and it resulted in a sense of fear because something great and big and strange was happening before the very eyes of all of these people. And so with that, they were experiencing it, they were seeing that all this was happening around Jerusalem, but specifically in and around the temple. Now, what you have is him now giving us an example of what he just described. This is the way Luke writes, and for some of you, you may not care, but for some of you, you will find this to be helpful. Luke has a way of writing where he will mention something casually and very broadly and then develop it later on in a chapter or two from where he first made mention. One of the things he loves to do is mention a person, and then one or two chapters later, he begins to deal with that person. And an example of that would be Saul, where you will find him mentioned in Acts chapter 7, and he's holding the cloaks of those who are going to stone to death, Stephen, who was the first martyr. And then you, very shortly after that, you now find Saul, who then became Paul, being converted to Jesus Christ. So understand that what he did in Acts chapter 2 is just simply talk about these signs and wonders, but doesn't describe them, and now right away in chapter 3, he begins to describe it. It's a happy story. It's an amazing story, frankly, but it is also something that sets up the rest of this section. So we don't want to get so caught up in the story of this man being healed as much as we want to understand that it is a vehicle used by Luke and the Holy Spirit to lead us into what follows. And that's what we will deal with in the coming sermon, perhaps two. In other words, the healing of this man is not the point. I already said this once, but I'll say it again. Miracles that become commonplace No longer are miracles. For it to be a miracle, it requires it to be rare and unique and shocking and and, and awe inspiring. But as you know, none of you thinks that the sunrise and sunset is a miracle because you see it every single day. It's just part of the day. But in fact, incredible things are occurring just for the fact that we are, just so that we can witness what we call the sunrise and sunset. They're not miraculous in their minds, but if we were to see them for the very first time, we would call them miraculous. In the same way, we tend to be a people who are always looking for it, and there's this disgusting, broken, twisted segment of the Christian, at least external Christian faith, that does nothing but emphasize the need and the and the idea that miracles ought to be commonplace. And I use very strong language there, and I do it on purpose because I believe that in, in in truly believe that it is a deadly and destructive idea. The number of people who spend their whole life pursuing the supernatural. There's a movement within Kenosha called the naturally supernatural that we ought to bring the supernatural into our common days. It should become commonplace in our days. And the moment that you do that, you no longer make it supernatural. No longer are you seeing these unique workings of God. Because now everything becomes a miracle and everybody's claiming a word from the Lord and everyone has a dream that they think God gave them and on and on. But the one thing that diminishes in every one of these types of activities is the centrality of the word of God. What you're going to see in chapter four is that this event, this miraculous event is going to be turned against the church it's actually going to become part of the basis for the attack on the church. So remember, I said in my last sermon, the marks of a not normal church, that the things that we talked about at the end of Acts chapter 2 are not normal for the church. We shouldn't expect them to be how things function. It was a unique time with unique situation going on. And one of the things was that They experienced great favor by the people, that the people who were not believers, who were not of the church, they actually enjoyed the presence of the Christians. They enjoyed the church there. Things were happening, exciting things, and they found great favor. That's chapter two at the very end. Chapter four, you're going to start to see that stop. That's what's going to actually be more normal. And so in this story, we see a miraculous healing, but it's not the point. So here's what you want to learn to do when you're in the book of Acts. You want to learn to ask, why is this story here? Remember, we have uh, post-it notes that we scrawl something and then throw it away. We have so much paper that we don't know what to do with the paper, and we're always promising that we're going to reduce paper, but we always seem to increase paper, right? Paper is common. It's cheap. It's of no importance. Back then, it was very difficult to have papyrus, which was a different form but functioned like paper. It was expensive, it was hard to come by. Most people couldn't even write. And so you had professional writers that would sit in the marketplace. And when you needed to have something written, you would actually pay them and they would write for you what needed to be written. Luke was a trained man and um, a wise man and a godly man. He knew how to write, but he also had a limited amount of space. So why did he choose this story? Why does he choose any story in the book of Acts? That's what you want To ask, it's not like you and I in high school where we have an essay and we have to have a thousand words minimum, right? And you keep hitting word count, word count, and you're like, ah, I need 12 more words. And you go to your friend, the thesaurus, and you start blowing smoke right and left because you got to get a thousand words. And that's all you do 1,000, bam, send. I am done. You don't care. Picture that you have to put X amount and they give you one sheet of paper. And that's it. And you have got to be able to state fully your argument on one sheet of paper, no more and no less. That's the situation you have here. So, why is this story here? And the reason is because he is showing to us the authority of the apostles. A lot of you don't argue over that, but that's why it's there. And it's important that you understand that's why it's there. It requires us to grasp what is an apostle. And once you know that, then you know why Luke has this little story here. An apostle simply means one who is sent. That's all it means. And it can just mean a sent one, but it also takes on a title, a term, somebody who is an apostle. He is an ambassador and a herald. But it's very important for you to understand that an apostle is not there to speak his words. An apostle is there to speak the words of him who sent him. Very important that you understand that. So, do these men who are claiming to be sent have the authority to speak on behalf of the one who sent them? Let me make it more blunt. Do these men who claim to be apostles of Jesus Christ have the authority to speak for Jesus Christ? How do you know? And the way you know is through these signs and wonders that in the early part of the ministry, when they were just starting, they were doing with great frequency. And so in the process of that, they display the actual authority that they are Christ's ambassadors. Because why? Well, because they are a continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The key function of the apostle is not signs and wonders at all. The key function of the apostle is to serve as a witness. Go back to chapter 1, and we'll just look quickly at some verses. Their purpose is to be witnesses. In verse 8, Paul, uh, Jesus tells them before he uh, ascends into heaven, he says, you shall receive power when the Spirit, Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what? You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. You shall be my witnesses. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we... Paul, uh, Peter is talking here, and he is declaring that we, the, 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 the men, the apostles, to which we are all witnesses. It's easy and cheap for you to say, well, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, you didn't see him. Not one of you saw him. So how do you know it's true? What you are doing is you actually are believing the testimony of these men. These men who ultimately, most of them, were murdered, martyred. They, they stood firm. They would not bend on their declaration that he died and he rose again. They were the witnesses. Chapter 3, verse 15. And again, a sermon. Put to death, the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact that we are witnesses. Chapter 5, verse 32, just to beat this to death. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So again and again, what you'll see in the book of Acts, going back to our passage, is that these men who were claiming to be sent by Jesus Christ, that one of the key tasks that they had was to be a witness of what they knew and saw. You and I are not witnesses in that way, and it's important that you understand that. Rather, what we are called to do is to declare the testimony of the apostles. This is very important, and this is why some of you, when you write your testimony for your baptism, I send it back or I I give you some counsel, because the testimony that you're sharing is not about you. It's about what Christ has done and what you are trying to do is give testimony that you believe the witness of the apostles who have described for you the gospel that is promised to bring salvation to you we are not witnessing our we are not called to be a witness of our experience your experience my experience and everyone else's experience might be pretty important to us but it has no value when it comes to saving What we do is our witness is to declare the witness of the apostles. This is why the church devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. They understood what the apostles were doing. And so not only are they a continuation of Jesus' ministry by functioning like witnesses, But their words, therefore, are authoritative, just like Jesus's. Go back with me to Acts 16, a a common passage that gets used out of context a lot. Acts chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. Here, John, in his gospel, slows down, way, way down. And starting in chapter uh, 13, he's now coming to the last hours of Christ's life before he goes and is arrested, betrayed, ultimately crucified. And he's instructing the the apostles. And he says in verses 12, uh, 12 and 13, I, Jesus, I have many more things to say to you. Who is the you? It's not you and I. It's the apostles. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, in other words, comes, he will guide you, it's better to not have into, but in, he will guide you in all the truth. It's the the preposition N, E-N E-N in English, and it's not so much going into something that, uh, in fact, when I preached on this years ago, uh, I said, picture a circle, and the circle is truth when you look at the word into, it implies a movement, doesn't That you're on the outside of truth and you go into it, right? The Greek preposition "n" is not one of movement. It's a placement. Uh, it's, it's describing an, a, a sphere. Picture that same circle of truth and he is guiding you in it. You're already there and what the spirit is doing is guiding you within the fullness of what that truth is. And that's what Jesus is telling them, is that he will guide you in truth. Why? For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come, and then goes on to describe this in greater detail. What the apostles were doing is that they were speaking the words that the Spirit brought them, which is why we call it a Spirit-inspired Word of God, and they are the words of Christ. In fact, Matt Miller has preached enough on this that hopefully you remember this, and this is why you should take notes, especially mark your Bibles, is is that every word is the word of Christ. He is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with us, or with God, and the word was God. From the very beginning of Genesis to the very end in Revelation, it is the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son, who is speaking. And so what you look at is the red letter editions, like I have, it's somewhat deceiving because somehow those are the words of Jesus, and we can easily exalt them above the other words. In fact, so much evil has happened in our, our day and age because... There'll be people who say, Well, you know, Pastor, nowhere did Jesus ever talk about homosexuality. It's like, it already betrays a bad theology. It already betrays that this individual does not even understand what the Bible is and how it functions. Any place that the Bible speaks to any issue, it's the Lord who is speaking. From the beginning to the end, you don't have important passages and less important. You don't have more inspired and less inspired. You don't have more authoritative and less authoritative. The fullness of the word is that. And for the apostles, they functioned as the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. One of the great weaknesses we see uh, on an alarming frequency is the way people will look at something that Peter writes, or Paul writes, or someone else, John writes in the New Testament, and we somehow treat it as if it's not as authoritative. But what you're actually doing is you are actually in your mind, whether you knew it or not, you are saying to God himself, I don't really appreciate that. That may be true for you, but it's not for me. The reality is, from the beginning to the very end, it is all the word of God and it is to be obeyed and received as the word of God. Thirdly, these apostles were then commissioned by Jesus Christ. So they function as witnesses. Their words have the same authority as Jesus Christ. And in preparing to send the disciples out to preach, What you have is Christ commissioning them to become his sent ones. And so in Matthew 11, we read these words, He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him, the Father, who sent me. You don't receive the apostles, then you reject Jesus Christ. You keep beating to death a certain memes on your page, The Chorus and Chaos, and, and I laugh because I know why you're doing it, and I think you're delightfully evil in doing so. I'm talking to Grayson. I mean that in a good way, um, but, but I'm like, one day you're going to have to take it the final notch and say, if you reject this, you reject Jesus, because that's the reality, And that, I mean, my patience is slowly going away more and more to this. You and I do not have the freedom to pick and choose. You don't have the freedom to open up the Bible and say, ah, not that one. You cannot. You are rejecting Jesus. The one who receives those commissioned by Jesus receives Jesus. And the ones who reject him Reject, ultimately, the Father himself. So that's what Luke says, is that if you reject them, you're rejecting both Jesus and the Father. That's in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we saw that once they have the Holy Spirit come upon them in power, they will be his official witnesses among mankind. And so these men are men appointed and sent out by the Lord of the church. So from the very beginning of Acts, we see the apostles come into the forefront with this incredible amount of authority and great power. Why? They're attesting that they are the ones officially sent by God. They are the spokesman. It is their teaching, not Joe's, their teaching that matters. Their teaching is what the church devoted it to. It wasn't like the typical Bible study you go to where everyone sits around and gives their opinion about what they think this means. The apostles, frankly, didn't care. The apostles were there to instruct. And it was a task of the church to receive. And that task has not ended to this day. They were the official witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You couldn't be an apostle unless you witnessed this. This was done in the early days during the miraculous outworkings that they are doing, such as this passage. They made the decisions in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, you actually see that as people sold property and brought the money so it could be distributed to those in need in the church, that they literally came in and would set it at the feet of the apostles. Can you imagine that today? there would be more tweets about how this is power-hungry power, power hungry and arrogant and this is idol, idol worship and exalting of men. No, they were the positions of authority. And the early church understood that they were giving this money, putting it at their feet, they were submitting it to these apostles, not because they were on a power trip, but because they represented their Lord. In the beginning, we'll see that the religious and political leaders began to attack them. Why? Because they knew who the leaders of this movement were, and therefore they went right at them. And they were even the ones who would investigate the claims that people were coming to faith in lands that they did not expect. When they heard that Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jew, were coming to faith in this, in, in, through the gospel in Jesus Christ, they were the ones that said, we need to make sure this is true. Why? Because they are the official authority. But in all of this, what they would do is perform signs and miracles, all of it designed to attest to their authority. And really, all they're doing there is just following the example of Jesus, right? Listen to what uh, the Bible says here in John chapter 3 the Pharisee Nicodemus came to him at nighttime and he says, look, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? Why does he know that? For not one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's like, we don't quite know what to do. We don't know who you are exactly, but we do know this. You come from God because nobody can do what you're doing. In John chapter 6, he performs all these wonderful miracles, and he says that the great crowd was actually following him. He actually looks at them and says, you are following me because I do these signs. They wanted to learn and know more. In John chapter 7, the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus because he was declaring himself to be the promised Messiah, the Christ, the one the Old Testament said would come and make all things right. And so they want to arrest him because they know that's what he's saying. But the crowds ask this simple question. When the Christ comes, shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The simple crowd, they could figure this out. They could say, okay, if you say you're the religious leaders, you're saying he can't be the Messiah, that's why we're going to arrest him. But in their mind, they're like, do we honestly believe that if he's not the Christ, that when the real Christ comes, he's going to do something better? Because what Christ is doing at that time is he has essentially ended all sickness all disease and all demonic oppression of any type in the, the the land of Galilee, for three years, it says the Bible says that anyone who came to him he healed. This wasn't the garbage that you see today where everything is carefully choreographed and they, they advertise, we're going to have a healing ceremony next week. Come, bring your, your faith offerings and this and that. And then they have this organized event. It just was, you need healing. You come to Jesus. He takes care of it. And it's instantaneous. Everyone knew about this man. Can you imagine? We live in such a medicated society that we just casually talk about going to the doctor. Can you imagine where you don't have any of that? That you have no hope for any relief. Your baby is dying. What are you going to do? You're going to go to Jesus. And you will do everything in your power to do it, including digging through a roof of some guy's house so you can lower your paralyzed friend down to get to him. You will do it. Why? Because you love your little one. Your favorite beloved grandmother is sick and weak. You would pick her up and you would carry her on your back. I don't care how far it is, you would take her because this one is not a charlatan. This one is not a fraud. This one, everybody gets healed. And that's what Christ was doing. It actually continues all the way up to when Jesus is arrested, beaten, and crucified. Why? Because these miracles, as good as they are, don't change the heart. They will never change unbelief. Signs and miracles will affirm, but they do not prove to a person He is true. Look backwards, if you can, to John 10. John 10, 24 to 32. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him, verse 24, chapter 10, gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ, the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And you can hear these, the tone in, in Jesus here. Jesus answered him, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. That's your problem. has nothing to do with my works or my words. The reality is that you don't belong to me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what does he do? He he preaches the word to them, and their reaction? The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Bam, that's brutal. He did the works, they attested as to what and who he was and is. But in the end, they didn't change anybody's heart, but they were never intended. To change anyone's heart. Any of you in this room right now, if you are still thinking in your mind that what we need is something special, you know, how how many times have you said this? Well, pray for my aunt. She was in a horrible car wreck, and and maybe God will use this to get her attention. That's bad theology. (coughs) The wreck will never get their attention. They may think that's what it was. What gets their attention is the Holy Spirit sovereignly working and taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of belief. That's what happened to every one of you here who is in Christ. Whether you were a young child raised in the faith and one day you just realized this is what I believe and some of you will be baptized next Sunday because of that, or you were just a happy little atheist trotting around doing your own thing until all of a sudden something radical happened and you said, I believe all of it was the same. And it wasn't because of some sickness or some great event and certainly never will be a great miracle. It was always and ever the gracious, sovereign work of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. Not of works lest any of you should boast. That's what we're seeing here in Acts. Jesus commissions them as apostles, and in chapter 2, we find them doing all these miraculous things. Now we see one in specific with the healing of this lame man. But it's not for their own sake. It's not for their purpose. It's certainly not so they can make bank. But in the name or the authority of Jesus Christ, and what you will find is that these very works that they do will then be used to attack them. Now, why? 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 Because what they do after they perform these works matters. They preach. They speak the truth. The next thing you'll read is what happens in chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 3. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Why? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they laid, laid hands on them and put them in jail the next day, for it was already evening. Why? They just healed the layman. Don't you want that to go on? Don't you want, don't you care about the, the needs of the people? No, because ultimately the truth is what offends. So understand that this whole story is here to establish the authority of the apostles. That's why it exists. As those who are true witnesses of Jesus the Messiah, they saw him die and they saw him raised from the dead. They are there to testify that Jesus is a true Messiah. We'll unfold that in the next time I come to you as the Lord wills. And it prepares them to hear the message preached. So what we wanna do now, that was all introduction, um, is look at the text and we'll just let it all unfold. Because it's a very simple, linear story, and I'll I'll add a few things here and there to help you see what's going on and give some explanation, and then I'll bring it all together. First of all, we see that the temple in verse 1, that they were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Well, I want you just to take note of this, because we're going to be dealing with this in the book of Hebrews, as if you, you come to that Bible study with me. They, they did not reject the temple and the life of the temple and the spiritual world of the temple, even though they now came to faith in Christ. Sometimes what you hear are people so demean that, that they, they fail to understand that that still existed and the spiritual life that would occur there was good. The ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. It was a regular time that the temple had where they would say, remember from last sermon, the prayers. They would say the prayers, the, the, the ordinary prayers, the ones that everyone would know by heart and they would recite. Peter and John are heading there because it's time for the prayers. And these are good prayers. They're biblical prayers. There's nothing wrong with these prayers. And they, as those who are believers in Jesus Christ, are there to pray. Why? Why do they not withdraw from the spiritual life of Israel? Well, because Israel still was and is God's people, his nation. And what the nation was supposed to be looking for was the Messiah, The Christ—that was what the Old Testament had promised them. They grew up learning about the Messiah and hoping in the Messiah that He would come. Well, who was it that they rejected? The Messiah, and that's what He's going to do in chapter three in the sermon—is confront them with that fact. But they had not rejected Messiah, and so they are what some people call today a completed Jew. These were Jews who now believed that Jesus was, in fact, the true Messiah. And so the, for them, the, spirit, the spiritual life and prayers attached to the temple didn't become bad. They just took on a more beautiful, fuller meaning. And then verse 2, we see the introduction of the character, the man. He's been lame from his mother's womb. So it was a rough situation. He came out, and when he came out from his mother, there was something wrong with his legs, his feet, his ankles. He's a crippled man. He's being brought here most likely by the relatives. The reason he's showing up at this place is because this would be the maximum opportunity for him to receive alms. There is no social system in place where this guy is going to be cared for by the state. There are no food stamps. There is nothing His family has to take care of him, and he cannot contribute to the well-being of the family. The only thing he can do is go and beg. It's only in places like America that somebody who is supposedly homeless can gain weight. Go outside of this nation. Go into any African nation. Go into most South uh, American nations, and you will see poverty. I have literally stepped over broken bodies in Africa, lying there. They're at the major intersections and at every church around. They sit at the gates of the church. They have no hope. They have no means to feed themselves, no skill, nothing. They are abject poverty. And they'll lie there with their swollen, disfigured legs just there. And they'll lie on the sidewalk. And they'll lie there all day long. Their family brings them early in the morning and lies them down. And then comes back at the nighttime and picks them up. And physically carries them to whatever hovel they live in. And they have their hand out in hopes that somebody will place a coin. A coin that means nothing. A coin that's worth less than a penny to you and I. Every day, that's their life, and it will never get better. They sit in their filth until somebody comes that's their family to take them home and to clean them up to start it all over. From birth, that was this child, this man. The people would view him as a weakling, an object of ridicule, of suspicion. In John chapter 9, we see the man born blind from birth, and the question that the disciples ask Jesus is very revealing because he said they ask him, "Who sinned, him or his parents?" Somebody sinned because he's blind. So that's the life of the cripple in the world of Judaism: is that this person did something wrong? There's something that he did or his family did to deserve this. And Jesus, of course, rebukes him for that. The gate location is known as the beautiful gate. No matter what you read in your study Bible, nobody knows which gate it is. There's ideas. It doesn't matter. It's known as the beautiful gate. It would be a place where all the people going to the temple to do their prayers would have to go through. That's why they go to the gate. Is That's the one place that you can't avoid, right? You see a homeless guy down in Chicago and he's shaking his little can or uh, whatever it is, and you can conveniently need to go to the other side of the street and just ignore him if you want. But you can if you got to go through the entrance and he's sitting there shaking it, right? And that's why he's there. And you get there quickly because all the other people who are broken and crippled are heading that way too. And so you got to get there and you got to get there as soon as you can. And so that's what's the picture. That's what's going on is they're heading there and here's this man. Now understand that every Jew who came to the temple knew this man. There's this woman in Ethiopia that Matt and I look for. Every day that we drive to, or we're actually driven to the place that we go teach, we go through the uh, area of marketplace and you'll see her. And the reason you'll see her, I've told you about her before, is that she has a truck tire that she cut into like a third and opened it up and her body sits inside it and then she ties it around herself because her, her body from the waist down is paralyzed and twisted. And then she has these two wooden blocks. This is her life. And, and, and so just understand, if you come to me and you're complaining about your hangnail, I just don't feel bad for you. Um, it's like, go fix it. This woman has two wooden blocks and she can't go forward. She only can go backwards. And so she puts them on the ground and hitches herself along. That's why she's inside the tire so she doesn't wear her skin off. And she's in there hustling for money every single day we see her every day she whatever she can do in any way to get something that's her life everyone knows her i know her and i'm only there a few times a year everybody knows this woman and that's what you have here is this this man everyone knows there's no doubt about it they all know his story so in verses 3 through 5 what we have is peter and John, look at him, and they fix their gaze on him. They say, look at us. Now, if you know anything about begging, you, they're looking, but they're not looking. All they're seeing is just one more body. And that one more body has a potential of giving them something. And so the the beggar is not really looking at them. He's, it's not like he's like, hey, how are you doing? Have a good day. Lord bless you. Nothing like that. He's just there existing with his hand out maybe saying something, and all of a sudden these two men stop and they say, look at me. That's just weird already. That's already strange. That's out of the ordinary. They're forcing him to see them. And then he's going to say, whoa, something's happening. Maybe I'm going to get a gift. Again, I can tell you that from experience. They see a white man in Africa, in Ethiopia, and I, I'm richer than their wildest dream. I usually have in my pocket more than they will make in their entire lifetime, and I don't have that much in my pocket. And I, if, if I actually fix my gaze on somebody begging, they immediately change their posture. They immediately, because they're like, I'm going to get something, I'm going to get something. That's what's happening here. Look at me. He's engaging this person as a human, as somebody made in the image of God. Look at me. And then they crush him because he says, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold. Now you can imagine. You go up, I'm going to get some money and right back down. I don't have any money for you. But I do have this, in the name of Jesus Christ and Nazarene walk. He grabs his arm, pulls him up, and bam, it's done. Again, notice how absolutely complete this miracle is. It's not like the silly stuff you see today that's so wrong. It is immediate. It is total. And I mean total in the sense that this man who's never walked in his life knows how to walk. He even knows how to dance. There's no physical therapy now for the next several years as he learns to work these muscles. No, he's, he's good to go. You want to see a little picture of what it's going to be like in eternity? That's it. Where everything works perfectly. But it's all about the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Why? Why in this name? Well, I've told you in the past, so I'll say it quickly, because it's not a magical formula, which is how it's used today, right? In the name of Jesus. They always have to do it that way, right? God. I'm right, right? I grew up in a church. I heard that, and Jesus wants to save you. In the name. No. And we somehow invoke this like some little silly charm Rather than what it is, when I say something in the name of Jesus, I'm invoking his authority. I have the authority to represent Jesus, which is why I spent all that time talking to you about what is an apostle. This is all about them showing themselves to be the apostles because it's not about them and their ministry. This is not their brand that they're trying to develop. They are here in the name of Jesus, and therefore what they're going to do is in the name of Jesus because it's in the authority of Jesus that they have the ability to do these things. In other words, as an apostle, he's sent sent with a message, and he is saying, when he says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, he is saying, I am functioning on behalf of and under the authority of Jesus Christ, and it's him who shall make you walk, and he does. Now take that and think about this back to Jesus. Everybody there remembered Jesus. Anyone who was sick, demonic, All of them had been healed. They all knew it. And so they all remembered the miracles of Jesus. They weren't done that long ago. And now they see these apostles in the name of Jesus doing these same kinds of miracles. And they're noticing it. Everyone knew the beggar. They're they're not like, well, wait, we don't even know who this guy is. And, you know, nowadays you start doing research and you find out that, in fact, this person who supposedly was crippled and now is walking, and they find out, oh, in fact, he's actually the secretary for the pastor who's claiming to do this miraculous healing. And it's all fraud, just fraud after fraud after fraud. No, everyone knew this guy. Peter performed this miracle just like Jesus had healed lame people before his crucifixion. And by doing it in Jesus' name, it was very obvious to everyone who watched it and talked about it in whose power and authority these men had come. And that's why he then preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with this comes this apostolic message. In light of the event, Peter turns and begins to preach. It's not about the event. That's what all I want you to get. It's never about the event. And so when you watch these people doing all of these YouTube videos and they're all about the event, you know already to just turn away. It will never be, be about the event. It will always be what is their message? And you compare what you hear in so many different sermons at how brutal Peter is in his sermon, and you'll realize, again, what a fraud looks like versus the real deal. Countless frauds today claim miracles and healings, but then they hide the truly lame and the true blind. The apostles had no money. They weren't looking to enrich themselves or fame no brand, no market, no merchandising. They shifted the focus off of themselves and always right back onto their Lord Jesus. That's the apostolic message. That's your message. This is the very thing every person here needs most desperately. It's how you might be made right with your maker, with your God. Everything else becomes secondary. It doesn't mean it becomes unimportant. It just means it's secondary. This man needed money. That's all he wanted. He wanted food. That's not unreasonable, right? Starving and you have no means to do it. You just need a little bit of money. Doesn't take much. I just need to eat. That's obvious. But that's not the most important thing he needed. But that's what he expected. That's all he was hoping for. And that's what everyone around there would be thinking. Just give the dude some money. You got some money? Give him some money. If you and I were really thinking outside the box, we might see decide, well, what he really needs is to be healed. Whoa, that wouldn't that be radical? That's not something he would expect, because nobody gets healed. The man Jesus who did it, he's dead. But it's still not the most important thing. You know what? People will say, and this, you'll hear this with the faith healers. You're thinking too small. If you expect small things, that's because you believe in a what? Small God. Oh. Expect the supernatural. The kingdom is here now. We do not live in a realm of unbelief, but belief. Cancer, if we truly believed, would end at these walls. These are actual quotes. It's filth. It's filth. It's not the healing that's needed. They did it for a different purpose. They healed them, but that's not the purpose. Now, be warned, fulfilled, filled. Why don't you go get a job and become a useful part of society? No. And then from there, he turns and he starts to call them murderers. Those who rejected Jesus the Lord, they put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. Repent. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. You know what the lame man needed? Jesus. Jesus. You know what you need? Jesus. Some of you, if you're here in unbelief, you're still thinking, I just need to fix my marriage. No, you don't. That's nice. But that's not what you need. I just need a better job. I just need relief from my pain. I just, I just, and we fill in the blank. No, you don't. You need Jesus. You need forgiveness of your sin. You need to be made right with that one who made you and sustains you. Now, think about this man. What did he want and what he got? He wanted alms, but he got healing. Now, think about what this world offers and what God offers. At best, this world will keep telling you and I something that's bound up in this world and this age and will pass away. But God offers life. Here we see it in this man by this reversal of the effects of a broken, sinful world. But beyond that, we see it in the forgiveness of sin, the giving of life through death and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's just use them quickly as I bring this all to an end as an illustration. The man is broken. He's beyond remedy. He'll never walk. He's living out what is left of a terrible life with no expectation that will ever get better, only worse. That's what every person walking and breathing around this city without Jesus Christ is experiencing. That's what your children are experiencing, whether you want to tell them that or not. That's what your spouse is experiencing if he or she doesn't know Jesus Christ. That's what you're experiencing if you're not in Jesus Christ. It won't get better. Whatever is the best life now is the best it will ever be. All we want to do at best in life is to extend the good times and try to avoid as much the bad times. But we all head to the same thing, death. As sinners who are rejecting God, we live a life under the dominion of sin. It rules our hearts and our desires. We fail, we rebel, we sin. Why? Because our nature is that way. At best, we try to reform our lives a little bit better, than we were before. That's the best we can hope for. But in reality, we know what goes on in our heart. We still think thoughts that we are ashamed of or ought to be. We hope for relief. We even maybe get a little bit of relief, but it will never stick, never stays. We clean up the act on the outside, but still what remains hidden from everyone, but God himself is there. But God, rich in his mercy, gives us his son to stand in our place. He is a great substitute who takes all of our filth upon him. He takes our punishment and dies upon the cross. He covers us with his pure righteousness and and perfections. By grace, not by works, not by efforts, not by self-help, but by grace, undeserved mercy. We are saved from our sin and into the life of Christ himself. Whose grace? God's grace. Beloved, if you are looking for your best life, now you have it. Because there's nothing else that this world can offer you. But in Christ, we find that there is a promise of all things made new, a new life that cannot be taken or lost because it's not of this age. And that's what Peter is going to now turn around and look at all these people who are amazed as they watch this man dancing, who for their entire life has been lame. They're going to, he's going to announce a way of escape. He's going to announce a way of salvation through repentance. And that's what we'll look at for probably a couple of weeks. Until that time, let's pray. So Father, I do ask that you would open our eyes to what is going on here. One, that we would stop being so foolish as to diminish the authority of the word. And we'd see that the apostolic writings are those writings that are yours and receive them and obey them. Second, I pray, Father, that we would stop seeking everything bound up in this age, but that we would recognize that we may receive relief, but it doesn't matter because we have Christ. And so I ask that you would also open our eyes to the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the life-changing power of Christ, that no matter how much this sin-darkened world presses upon us, we have Christ. And therefore, we do not belong here anymore. And that even in death, we are brought into his glorious presence, awaiting the day of resurrection. Now, Father, impress that upon us enough that we'll actually tell people about it. That they might have life in Christ. I ask in your son's name. Amen.